thanks for joining us. I'm Jen Winkleman. This next pocket of time is going to be dedicated to the healing art of storytelling. I've been working in the mental health field for the better part of the last two decades, and in that time, because of my work, I've had the great privilege of hearing countless stories. I hear stories that leave me at the end of the day filled with awe about the resilience of the human spirit. And I get to hear stories about those surprising moments when love steps in to save the day at the very last moment. And I hear stories about the true grit it sometimes takes to survive the human experience. I learned something about life and humanity from all of these stories, and I want to be able to share what I've learned. But because of the part that I play in my community, I'm meant to be a keeper of those narratives. It's important that I maintain privacy and confidentiality for the families that I serve. And so those stories have to stay inside the four walls of my counseling office and are held by those sacred moments where one person tells their truth and another person bears witness to it. And in this, there's some sort of magic that we co-create that leads to healing. But this has me thinking that the reach for healing could be bigger. So I decided that outside the counseling office and on a larger scale, we needed a forum for storytelling. We need to get back to the root of taking the time to listen to each other's experiences and to begin to draw from them. So today, our guest and I will have an unscripted conversation, apart from the questions that we routinely ask to get into it. And then you and I will have the opportunity to learn a bit from his or her experience. In every case, there is value and something that we can borrow for our own lives. Because behind every face, there is a story. And in every story, there are life lessons begging to be learned. So as we listen along today, it's up to us to find the lesson in the story. And then if you and I so choose, we can catch that truth like a firefly in a jar and use it as light on our own paths. Thanks again for being with us. This is all I know. Today, our guest is Doug. Doug, thank you for being with us. Oh, I'm so excited. This is good. (laughs) So we're going to square up with our four anchor questions to set our springboard for today. Okay. The first one is, who are you? Uh, What do our listeners need to know about who you are to make the most out of whatever we'll discuss? Wow. Who are you? That's a pretty big question. I would say I'm I'm a man who... Who just loves, to, who just loves passion, loves to build, loves to create, loves to be with people who are passionate and, and care about things. I'm very driven. I'm a, I'm a father and a, a husband. I'm a father of four kids, husband of a wonderful wife, and and I just got. I come from a great family, but that's more of the context. Who I am is just a person who just really likes to build things and create and and just grow. And I get bored when I'm sitting still. I get bored with going in circles and managing stuff. So my life is more about finding something new all the time. Okay. So that's actually perfect for the second question. Oh, good. I'm so glad. (laughs) (laughs) So some of us believe that our lives are pretty ordinary. Others of us think that we have a very extraordinary life. So if you put those two things on a spectrum, where do you plot yours between ordinary and extraordinary and why? Wow. I would say extraordinary, and I would say everybody should be with me on extraordinary. I don't believe in ordinary life. I think everybody is extraordinary because you can't compare. But why is why would I say that about myself? I think beyond the fact that I, I feel like we're created unique and individual and extraordinary, beyond that fact, I think my journey has, has been an unusual one. So I've, 
you know, I kind of grew up in the ordinary, in a, you know, a very conservative home with a mom and a dad, almost a white picket fence, everything that everybody had as an ordinary American life in the 60s. So I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was pretty ordinary, mom, dad, you know, four kids. But what I, what I went through after that, when I, when I was married the first time, I was married, and, and my young wife, she was 18, I was 19, oh my gosh. And we got married. When you got married. When we got married. 18 and 19. Yeah. Crazy. Well, she turned 18, and then two weeks later we got married. So I had to wait for her to be 18, according to her dad. So, you know, that's, this was back in, you know, the, the 80s. So... Um, but it was we just had a great time. We went to college together. Um, she got pregnant. We had a boy, a little baby together, and then sadly she and my second child died. So they, when they passed away, that was a little unusual, obviously for me. Now everybody goes through loss, so that doesn't make us as far special. But my life being extraordinary, I think it was a little unusual, and it was unusual that she died in the in the 80s from an HIV-infected blood transfusion. So that made it a little unusual. Remarrying after that to my wonderful wife today, remarrying, and then having children in this, in this marriage, it was raised in the context of that story. So that was, it was kind of weird. It was a shadow that we had to kind of live through. And having done that, and I talked about it and wrote about it and spoke professionally, and did all that stuff for a long time, but I finally got out from behind that shadow of that story and got to answer that question, who are you, that we just talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, because we, we all have signature stories but um, who, who we are I, is not divine by what happens to us. I mean, it may shape who we are, but that's not, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not our identities. So I really wrestled with that, and I really, I really wrestled with finding the answer to the question, Doug, really, who are you? Are you a speaker? No, that's what I do, but who are you? You know, are you a, a father? That's my role, but, what, but who are, are you? You know, and and finally, when I when I got out from underneath the shadow of that story, the shadow of the loss with Ashley and Yvonne's death, my wife and my daughter's death, um, and I remember going to the gravesite in Nebraska and looking at Yvonne's tombstone, and you know I would go every year Memorial Weekend, and I remember wiping it clean and, and pulling the weeds around it, and I told her I said it's finally our story. You know, it's not, it's not a story I make money off of. It's not a story that makes me famous. It's not a story that helps me sell a book. It's finally our story. And that was really healthy. It was a big shift. Like more quiet now. Yeah. More um, private now. Much more. And, and there was an element, I don't know if anybody's gone through that, where you've had a moment of extraordinary experiences. And it, with that comes the, whatever, the 15 seconds of fame or the, the, the moments where there's attention, and then you go back to normal whatever that means, or routine, uh, obscurity maybe, There's, that's when this, the first question haunts us, who are you really? And I went through that, Jen. I, was, I wasn't sure that I, I liked being just Doug. That's not cool, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I it looks to, pretty cool from here. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I, I wanted to be someone who was, you know, that, that made the crowds cheer, and I wanted to be pe- someone who was someone special on a stage, and that's the problem. you got to be able to be comfortable with yourself when you're not on a stage, and there's not a spotlight on you, and you're still okay with that. So being content is the challenge. And, and I read a, a quote maybe about five, six months ago that said it is re- something along the lines of it, it, it is really hard to be happy when you are never content with yourself. Yeah. You know, 
Oh, oh, and then the second quote was, it is hard to be content when, you're, when you are your own worst critic. So, you know, that, that was me, was I just felt like now that I don't have a story to make me famous or to make me extraordinary, now what? who am I? Yeah, so, so on that spectrum, I still feel like I'm extraordinary because it's taken me 10 years of, of not being, not leveraging some, some phenomenal story, not leveraging that to be somebody special, but just being. And that's been hard, but it's been good. It's been hard. You're making this so easy on me, Doug. Because, I don't know these questions. No, I know. But this is what's so brilliant okay. is that I have this mental picture of this little square that I'm going to take people through as our springboard. Ah. So we're getting ready to hit that third point right now. And you just teed it up perfectly. Well, good. How do you define success? Like, what do you think makes, the, what's the mark of a successful life? I think you have to. For me, it's really funny because I listened to a podcast that that's one of their top four questions that they ask at the end of every podcast. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I'm a plagiarizer. You are a plagiarizer. <laughs> and I'm not going to say what podcast it is because I don't want anybody to leave this fantastic moment right now. <laughs> so what is my, I think to define success for me, I, I would say you have to go back to, I'm, imagine, I'm picturing in my mind my dad's um, final moments before he died a few years back. And looking at the final moments you have on life and then saying, you know, was it good? And I, th I think for me, it's, you, you've got to measure success that, that you feel like the answer is yes at the end. Just simply asking, was it good? Yeah. You know, I was, I was also listening to another interview this it was a TED talk and this guy was talking about he was a paramedic and saying I've met with a lot of people who died and I finally instead of trying to give them fake hope when they die um, and tell them you'll be fine you'll be fine knowing that they're going to bleed out I finally told them no you, you're not going to make it and then they would relax and then they would say the real important things you know I just took a huge breath <laughs> yeah you know the important things and we're talking about success so I they would say, you know, will you tell someone I love them? And when they would say, do you think I made a difference? I think, I think that's got to be the key. So yet to, to measure success in life, you have to work from that point backwards. Are you doing things where people know that you love them and you're giving, whether they're, whether they know you or not, you know, are you, are you donating? Are you sharing, helping kids? Are you, whatever it is, are, do people that, that you touch directly or indirectly know that you're there? Are you making a difference? And if you are, it doesn't matter what kind of cars or toys or stuff you have because you're not taking that with you in the final moment. So success is measured at the end of your life backwards, I think. And for me to be, to be successful is to say, I want to just, I want people around me to know that I love them and I care and I want to make a difference. I want to do something with my life, whatever that is. So that when I go to bed at night, I can take that deep breath you just took and say, you yeah. know what? This is good. Man, I just feel like sobbing. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> this is where we cry. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for offering that the way that you did because I love that. And I think if um, this part doesn't go to the cutting room floor, I think yeah. our listeners will too. But this is the hard part. 
because we've been trained that that's not success. Right. But I think that's why it hits us so deep. I think so too. Because it's like, it resonates as true with a capital T. Like we know it's like you're speaking the truth. Right. Right. And, and that's what I want to do. What do you want to do with your life? Well, I want to let people know that they're loved and that they're cared for. And I want to make a difference. So who doesn't? Right. You know, and some, sometimes, and I know before the podcast we were discussing this, but sometimes the the job you have may not facilitate that. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Maybe you're working so that you can live your life. Maybe you're working so that you can love somebody, but maybe your work is not the fulfillment of success. Maybe work is work and success comes from your life. And maybe the two aren't as integrated as, as you'd like them to be. I know that we all want to have careers where we make a difference and we want the flex time and we want the unlimited paid vacation. And I, I know that. But sometimes reality just comes in like a beast and you just have to say, you know what? I'm working so that I can live my life. And it, it's phenomenal if you have a career that integrates the two. Right. But, not but that's everybody not does. most people. Yeah, not everybody does. And, and that's okay. So you have to be okay with it being not okay. You know, not integrated. Because success is big, bigger than that. You don't have to find a job to make you, quote, successful. You can be successful doing anything if it funds your life. And that may be contrary to where people are going, but it, I think that I find that. And, you know, I went through a drive through The lady who handed me my Diet Coke, I don't know if that's her idea of being loved and you know? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not. But I might circle back and just come next time and say, you know what? Think you know? I I don't know. I might make a difference next time and just say thank you. you and maybe that's part of it too. You know? Maybe that's saying you know well, what does that look like in us in the small tasks of every day? To be successful is to be loved and love other people. You know, I'm thinking of a little bit of Moulin Rouge right now. You know, the the saying from that movie, but. To, to love and be loved in return, but also to make a difference in, in lives. And I think we just need to make that part of our breath. You know, this is what we do. Oh, I love the way you said that. Like breathing. Yeah, you have to. It's life. Okay, so here's the last part of the square. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Okay, this isn't deep enough. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, here we go. What are three events or experiences that you feel have most shaped the direction of your life or, or who you are? And then after you sort of outline those three things for us, will you choose one to teach from where you'll tell us the story more in depth and we can get more from what you, what you learned from that, that time or that event or experience? Who I am. Three things that have most shaped who I am. That's a hard one. <laughs> because who I am. Oh, okay, so. I feel like we're both, like we're in a showdown right now. I know. <laughs> we both just sort of leaned into each other. And you know what? Since I already <laughs> talked about the extraordinary, I, I'm fighting to try to not talk about that big tragedy that that shaped my life. So I'm want so bad to not talk about that. Okay. That's okay. No, but I think that that's important. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you mention it as part of your it's top like three. The, it's like maybe the, it's not what you teach from. Yeah, true. It's like the elephant in the room. It's like, well, I, everybody knows that's in the room. So of course he's going to say that story. But I think obviously it was signature. It changed everything in my life. I'm just trying to think of the one before that. If one was before, I would, I look at it this way as three turning points. Okay. 
in, in our life journey, there are three major turns that you took or forks in the road or decisions or major turning points that, that deeply shaped you. That's how I'm, I'm reframing that, if that's okay. Of course it is. And I would say, uh, you know, the, the context of being raised in such a great family, um, a little legalistic and a, a little religiously constrained, you know, I couldn't have playing cards when I was a kid because wow. I'd go to hell. But um, so a little bit constrained, but it was a very good family, very healthy, loving family. So that's that's the context. So you have to turn from or in the midst of something. So that doesn't, that's not a turning point, but I think going from that where everything's good. That, every, that context is one of the three things. I think so. Everything is good. That's the framework. Good things happen to good people, to people who do good was my unwritten moral code, you know? Yeah. So when I'm, when Yvonne and I are in college and we find out she's infected with HIV, that clashed with everything that I had been taught, both just, we, did, she's we good. did everything right. We're good. We did everything right. Not only that, we gave our lives to God and we were in the ministry to be, to be ministers. So why would he do this to somebody who offered his life to reach people for him? This made no sense unless he's going to do some crazy thing and let them die and then use that story to reach him, which is how I transitioned through that. So I think the first major turning point for me, at least one of these big one was, was Yvonne's death. Um, Yvonne and Ashley, my daughter was born after that with HIV also. So Yvonne and Ashley's death, um, and that impacted my faith. It impacted what I thought about God. It impacted what I thought about people. I, I was at the time of, of their death and at the time of the infection, I was really bitter and really angry and hatred toward the gay community because it happened to be um, a, a homosexual male who lied on his donor form who in, infected the blood supply. But what we don't know is why he lied. Fear, he might have been in shame, he might have been broken and just didn't have anybody to turn to. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he didn't know. That he was infected. True. Yeah. So, but nonetheless, I was, I was really bitter and, hate, and angry. Yeah. So that, that first turn in my life, I think that first big event was the, the loss of my wife and daughter, which was a fantastically unusual story to lose a wife and daughter to HIV, even though I was not infected and I was speaking to teenagers professionally and telling a story. So that was unusual. Um, I would say the second big turn in my life was ha having spent 17 years telling the story on the road. I since remarried. I have a wonderful wife, and we had a little girl in this marriage, and we have a little boy in this marriage, and we were considering adopting a little girl. And in the midst of that, I, I allowed myself to fall into the trap that we do of um, always feeling like you have to get something from somebody to be valid, to be validated. So when I would come home, every, life was normal. So when I come home, I'm a husband, I'm a father. You take out the trash, you do the dishes. This is normal Mow life. Mow the lawn. Mow the lawn. It, life becomes daily. Uh, yeah, and when I came home, the, the words that you heard when you walk in the door and you're dragging your suitcase is, hi, honey. But Guess what happened while you were gone? <laughs> no, when I was gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When I was gone, when I got off the stage, I didn't get, hi, honey. I'm like, oh, my God, you're amazing. Oh, my God, you're the best. Oh, my God. Oh, you're so awesome. Oh. oh. So I was inundated with, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're so awesome, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're awesome. But when I got home, I didn't hear that. But there are other people in your life that would be happy to tell you that. 
and I fell into a trap where that I allowed that voice from other people to almost intoxicate me or I kind of got addicted to that mm -hmm. and it ended up almost destroying my marriage um, I was unfaithful to my wife for a period of time and it was just it, it was that short intoxicating moment of, uh, during the infidelity of allowing myself just to have someone worship me in a sense or just say you're awesome you're awesome you're awesome and it matched the stage the lights the story but it wasn't real I mean it was real for the moment but I knew it wasn't long lasting so when that occurred, that's when we shut everything down. I, I quit speaking and I focus solely on my marriage. Um, I need to focus on my marriage and I need to focus on me. I need to get off the stage. I need to turn the spotlight off. I need to be dug and answer that first question that you asked, who are you? Mm -hmm. Which is scary for a lot of people to answer. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a big turning point in my life. and then. The third turning point, and I, there, that's what I was wrestling with earlier. I don't know a really specific good one. I think I'm, I think I'm going through it right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's allowed. I'm having a post mid, post post mid midlife. Um, no, I, I think I'm experienced in, in my career, I'm, and in my life personally, and in my marriage and my my family, everything's trying, everything's chaotic right now. And it's trying to converge somehow. And it's really stressing me out. <laughs> but it's, I'm, I think I'm going through the turn because it's, I'm involved in community theater. I'm involved, I'm surrounded nonstop by gay and lesbian friends. These are truly my friends. Um, they, the people that I used to hate, are yeah, my, it's a big jump close, yeah, my from the life friends. before. Yeah, And I told them that at uh, this wonderful theater here in town, the Vintage Theater, I told them that one night after performance, I was in Billy Elliot and had this great time in the show. And I told them afterwards, and I started telling them, I started crying. I said, you know, I used to hate you guys. Mm. And I told them the story. And, and I said, you know, the people who reached out to me after the church asked us to leave because of our HIV infections when I was a minister. The church asked you to leave. Yeah, the church, yeah, part of the story of the trauma. Um, the church didn't know how to deal with it, so they asked us to leave. <clears throat> so it was the gay community that reached out to me after my wife and daughter's death that reached out to me to embrace and then to raise funds for my daughter, my late daughter in her memory for Children's Hospital for HIV research. So I brought that back up. It, it, that had kind of sat dormant for maybe, <clears throat> I don't know, a decade or so. But I brought it back up to the friends in the theater. And I said, you know, it, it was the people from Hair Elan and from the gay community that did Life With Art. I still have the posters. And for the Ashley Herman Memorial Fund for Ch Denver Children's Hospital for pediatric AIDS research, it was your community. We were at war. We were mortal enemies when this first happened. but. You guys have just been, and I said, you know what? I've never actually told anybody I'm sorry. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I looked at him, and, and one of them, um, I won't name him, but one of them, he, he, he couldn't look at me. He just started crying. He's like turned, and I'm like, I just want to say I'm sorry for judging you and for hating you. Um, these are people that needed love, and these are people that reached out to me when I, in my when hardest time love. when I needed it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm in the midst of all this today of... It's like that part of my life has come full circle. So I'm, I'm <laughs> spending time in a dressing room surrounded by, by, by men who are very different than me, but we all care about the same thing, you know. So I, I wish I had a better answer for this third turning point, but I think it's maybe it's, it's a confluence of chaos. 
Does that make sense? It's like all this, all these things are happening at once, and I'm in the midst of all this change and all this value challenges, and everything inside of me is being changed, challenged. Um, I'm still holding to the piece inside of me that's like, you know, this is who you are. You know, you're you're a man who believes in God. You're a creative person. You're a person who cares about people. You know, you're compassionate and you're a builder, and you need to do that wherever that's at in your life. So I think what I'm doing is I'm refining me in the midst of all the chaos. All the chaos. So I wish that was a more clean turning point, but I think it's 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 real. It's where I'm at. Okay, so there's the messy the messy turning point. No, it's okay. This is good. What am I gonna teach from? There's the messy turning point. Okay. There's the marriage Mm -hmm. and the the intoxication that led to infidelity. Right. And there's the loss. Right. And then I think the the fourth thing, even though we didn't really couch it as a turning point, was like the context of the family that you came from. Right. Was you know. So, right. <laughs> pick your poison, sir. Wow. Oh my goodness. I wish the listener could just push a button beep and then we they make would, a vote. Yeah, make a vote. <laughs> yeah, the voters. That'd be cool. Maybe one day when we're live. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, so I'm going with my deep in my gut. I'm just hoping that God is kind of prompting me which way to talk, but um, I think I'm going I think I'm going to talk a little bit about for some, for some reason, I'm going to talk about the marriage, the failure of the marriage. It is so addictive to surround yourself with people who love you, right? Because everybody has an innate desire to be loved and accepted and valued. Everybody does. And Absolutely. That's, and that's healthy. Um, it's got to be filled in the right ways, though. Right. So in the same way that some people would use a drug or use something to try to numb themselves out or buzz themselves or try to, that happens to us emotionally. And I, and I didn't realize it. I mean, I kind of started to realize it, that I was getting addicted to the applause because I would work hard for it. And I would pound myself. My, my wife would say, she'd say, well, how did the presentation go? And I said, from one to 10, I would say it was a seven. It was a six. It was a nine. It was, when would, it's a nine, it's okay. Oh man, I'm awesome. People love me today. It was so, I think it's so easy for us to to go down the wrong path of becoming addicted to truly addicted to maybe applause or not appreciation but applause because it's it's a false sense of validation. You can do a good job and people can applaud you, but that's not the point, you know. Any more than that same person should applaud you in the in the dark secrets because that's still you too, also. So. I really think, Jen, I found myself truly hungering for that. And when it wasn't happening at home, it really bothered me. And there's a lot of things. I wish I could, you know, infidelity and and the collapse of a marriage doesn't happen because usually just because of one thing. I think that you would know more than me as a therapist, but I, I... uh, my experience is there's a lot of moving pieces that make that happen. Loads of layers. Yeah. And, it, and sometimes it's very subtle things that build on each other over time. I can, yeah. That's yeah. my experience. Yeah. And But this was a big one for me. This was, this one was triggering from some stuff that happened when I was younger, younger and it was like saying, look, people, and, and especially if it was women, people applaud you. They love you. They want to be with you. They think you're cool. You know, you do that all the time. And then you come home back to your normal life and you feel like this is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I love the the candor, right. and the oh intensity my gosh. with which. Do you I have, have to sit well, through this not lifestyle? Well, it's not a show. Life is daily. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's what we have to be comfortable with. That. So my first teaching point would be, first of all, be very very careful of what you find yourself drinking, what you're become addicted to. And as I said to a friend of mine, I'm like, look, you love the you love doing these shows because you always want to be on stage. You always want to be in front of people. And I think that's fine, but be careful what's driving that. So I think the first lesson is take a good look inside and see what's driving that and see if you can be content if you're not on the stage and if you're not in the spotlight and if people don't always applaud you. And if you have a job or a career where that happens a lot and you come home and you feel like everything's dry, maybe you're pulling too much from, from what from your job and it's inside of you that needs to be worked on. Yeah. You know, and if, and if that's true and you can work on the inside of yourself and be content as a person, then the applause is nice, but that's not the point, right? And th it makes you not as easily tempted um, because that applause, in my experience of infidelity, the, the applause also occurred from, from a friend, from a, a lady that was a friend of our family. And she was more than happy to say how awesome I was. And, you know, and she knew what buttons to push and I knew what strings to pull to try to get her to push those buttons. It was just a, just a horrible dance, but it was a dance nonetheless. And I think we have to be careful about that. And if I could go back, I would say, you know, Doug, I, to talk to the Doug back then, I want him to see how he was drinking from the wrong well to try to feed that. So I think that's the first thing is just be very careful about those the applause. Um, and then the other thing I would say too is probably the, the second teaching point out of out of the infidelity. Maybe there's there's a lot more, but and it's it's a it's a similar topic, but it comes from the other side. I had had some things happen to me when I was a young boy that challenged my masculinity, made me question it a little bit. So as a result, I kind of, I didn't realize consciously I was doing this, I don't think, but whenever I was around women or beautiful women or pornography or whatever, it, I began to realize that, that the testosterone in me would surge. And I liked the feeling of being masculine, and especially if I was being ex accepted or wanted. So it's a form of applause, but it's an internal chemical yeah, yeah. version it, of it. Yeah, chemical applause. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I became addicted to that a little bit to say, I just need that buzz of, of attention from women because it makes me feel masculine. And I wasn't thinking this logically. This was all emotional. So it's more in retrospect that you understand this. Yes. Can you describe the experience? Like, right now you're talking about it with some wisdom. Right. What's it like to experience that before wisdom sets in? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if there's somebody out there who's on a on the path uh -huh. that this but behind you always and right. they don't have the benefit of that retrospect yet right what might they be experiencing that would be a clue or a, a flag like hey this might be something yeah like pay attention and do something right does that from it's a clumsy question no it's yeah, i understand though it's um you know, if you if you find yourself, and it's, I, I would imagine this works for women too, but I'm just going to only speak from my experience to men. So, <clears throat> if you find yourself where either pornography or the attention of women, if you find yourself where that triggers you and it excites you, or you can literally feel that rush of testosterone or rush of of the chemical rush inside of you, um, 
sometimes, and if you find that you need that, sometimes you get depressed or you get down, but instead of going to get alcohol, that's the buzz you go after. Mm -hmm. It might be, it's probably a symptom of something inside this, this broken. So it's worth stopping for a moment and asking yourself the question, why is it that I have to have that to feel masculine? Why is it that I have to have that to feel alive? What is it that caused me to not be masculine or what is it that that happened in my past that caused me to die a little bit because the opposite is what we're trying to find. We're trying to get masculinity or life or a buzz or so what is it that did the opposite that took something from me or killed me a little bit or took away that contentment? What is that? Well, and can you be masculine without it? Without the buzz? Yeah. I, th I, that's back to the first question. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Who are you? Well, this is who I am. I'm a man who, but I'm a man. So it's like, so if masculinity is, t is that tightly linked with a testosterone buzz? I don't, I don't think it's defined by the testosterone buzz. I think you can be masculine without that. But I think people need to know, too, the testosterone buzz is a natural function of being right. masculine. Yes. We wish it wasn't. But it's a thing. But it's a thing. It's a real thing. Um, so can you be that without that? Sure. But that's not the point that you do or don't have that testosterone buzz. The, the point is, what's the trigger? Why do I need that trigger to cause that to happen? Why can't I just have that natural, you know, be a part of who I am? And since I didn't have a normal, quote unquote, normal experience since I didn't have, I, I came through some trauma that resulted in me being really addicted to that buzz and to pornography and to women wanting me or accepting me, which later became applause on a stage. You know, I, since I don't have, don't know what that's like, I, all I know is my experience. And yeah. So I guess the, the advice would be pause, you know, hit pause for a second, take a deep breath and Ask yourself why, and if you might, you might, or you might not remember, but there might be things that have occurred. And it's not that we're trying to dig up old skeletons, but sometimes you have to find the sliver that's been infected, and remove it, and say, okay, now I get me, I get me more than I get that I got me before. You know, it's like I get, I understand myself, so now I know what it is. So now I know my trigger. So when I feel that trigger, I, at least I know what's going on. It's a habitual pattern now, so I, I've got to say, okay, if I'm going to change this habit, this is what i got to do, right? I need to change how I think, what I do, physic with something. So um, looking back, if the guy's falling behind me, I, I, would, I would challenge him, but I would say, you know, you need to do something else. You need, and I, I don't have a coach from back there, so I don't know what I would say other than, um, buddy, you just... And I'm pausing. I guess I'm pausing a little bit, Jen, too, because everything I'm about to say right now, I've actually did hear people tell, say to me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's like. But it didn't. Just, it didn't, didn't land. I didn't care. I didn't care. I knew it was coming. They're like, look, if you keep going down this path, sermons would hit, or books you read, or just your own conscience. Don't go down this. There's too many speed bumps. God's putting speed bumps in front of you on purpose. Whatever. I knew what was going on, but I was so addicted to that rush. And when it became from a particular person that was willing to have an affair with me and didn't care how it would impact my family, I didn't care. And I was even still more attracted to a person that was willing to hurt my wife. And that's a problem, right? That's a problem. Mm -hmm. So I was more attracted to a person and willing to have an affair with that person who was willing to, to see her, her kids be go through a divorce experience and have to share custody. She didn't care. 
we talked about it. She didn't care. But it wasn't enough to get me to stop. I was so addicted to that rush of wanting to be wanted and that buzz of feeling masculine when I was with her, right? So for me, I think it, it was really, it's, it was about learning how to understand that and learning how to be a man that is not driven by the, by the stage or by the applause or by the rush or by the buzz. You have to learn to be content with it. And, and I'm, I still struggle with it. I still struggle with the walk. I wish I could say, here's the book. It's five easy steps. Here's what it's only you do. 30 pages long. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sorry. You probably hit stop on the podcast, but it, it's, <laughs> it's messy. It's messy and it's life and it's normal. But the good thing is, and I, I guess the third teaching point here, the good thing is, is I did address it. You know, when, when it all blew up, um, when the affair all blew up, I'm proud of myself that, that I reached out and I called someone who was skilled, a therapist that was able to help us. And I went to that person and just said, I, and I remember telling, I called this person and said, look, I think I just torpedoed my marriage. Um, so it was honest. Um, the therapy was horribly painful. Yeah. Um, it was deep. It was hard. Um, and not only was it hard because I felt like my, not my emotions were puking, but my history was puking mm -hmm. when I was going through it. At the, but then after that, it was hard because I was looking into the eyes of a woman that I, I knew I loved my wife, but I had just allowed her just to get beaten by my own lack of discipline, self-discipline and, and others. And that was hard to see that. Um, and then in the midst of that, knowing that you you don't instantly fix yourself, so I'm still battling the old draw and the old addictions at the same time. So for someone who's maybe down that path or maybe in the midst of that, thinking I've already gone too far. You know, I remember I was on a plane ride flying home one night and I had a picture of this woman and I had a picture of my wife and I had them side by side on my laptop and I was trying to decide. Oh, wow. I'm like, which way am I going? So if you're listening and you, you have somewhat similar like that, and you're like, I've, Doug, I've already gone so far. I'm like, I get that. I did too. I, I went all the way through and I'm like, I have to make a decision. This lady wants me to leave and run off with her. I finally got to the point where I, I made a decision, but I, I decided as hard as it was, I was going to fight for my marriage. And I told myself, I'm going to fight for it hard for two years. And then I'm going to continue. Then I'm trying to go into a normal lifestyle. lifestyle and after five years... I will know if it made it, if I made it. Really? How did you pick those numbers? I just did. Okay. I just did. So it just arbitrarily, I hard said, fight know, for two, check hard, out in five. Yeah, hard fight for two. And if in five it goes back and this is blah and it didn't work and there's no emotion and there's nothing here, then, and I wanted to make sure that my wife was able to, to have a career and have a job. So if I left, she and the kids would be okay. And I still take care of them. But so, um, so I worked hard for two years, even though my heart was in it, but even though I knew there might be an exit door at the end of this, but I worked hard on it. Yeah. It was, it was hard work without the guarantee. Yes. You don't know whether this is actually going to come through. It's just hard work for the sake of hard work. And that's scary. That's so hard. Yeah. Not it's, many people have the strength to do that. This, very exhausting. And it, well, and so many times, I mean, I'm just thinking about my own life. So many times I feel like I can endure X if I know why is coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. yeah. And in change management, that's what they call the valley of despair. Because in any change experience, you have a little bit of a rush for the change. Then you go into this valley. And the only way you come out of the valley is is the vision of why. And the, the X and the Y. The why in the future of if I could just focus on that vision, we'll pull out of this. 
But I, and that's what my vision was, was it's going to get better. But at the same time, I, I always don't know. knew, I always knew it might not. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what we did. I just, we just worked really hard. Uh, I think my wife would have a completely different perspective. She was like all in. I loved him. I'm not leaving him all in. I don't know why my wife had a get out of jail free card. She could have left. She deserved to leave. She didn't do anything wrong. So she, she should have, but she fought alongside of me and we worked through this hard together. So that was coming through that. That was the, the third teaching point out of that, that turning point, I think, would probably be saying, look, you know, um, set, set a goal, set, set a date. Just say, look, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to go through the pain. Um, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do the work. And one, this is for my, guy, my guys out there. You know, this, this, this counselor I, w- I was talking to, I had two different counselors. And one of them was, saying, was showing me Civil War memorabilia. And he, gave, he put in my hand, the one thing I remember of all his, all his, his uh, the hundreds of dollars I gave this guy. This is the one, <laughs> this is the one thing I remember. Is the, it was a cannonball from the Civil War. And he, it was a piece of a cannonball, very heavy, maybe five or eight pounds. So he explained how fathers and sons and brothers and uncles and cousins would go shoulder to shoulder. The men would go shoulder to shoulder and they would walk towards cannons or they would run towards cannons before the cannons had gone off and they knew cannon fire was come. And when the cannons were, were lit and when they exploded, there was what they called the pink mist. I call it red mist, um, where it would hit the bodies and literally this cannonball was fired. At some point in time, this cannonball was fired. And um, what did it hit? And what did it go through? And if you're, would you be willing to walk with your son or your father, or your brother, um, your dad? Would you, would you be willing to go through that and face those cannons? Um, that takes a, a unique type of courage. Yes, it does. And because you don't know, you don't know if you're going to make it or not. You don't know. And is this fight worth it? Is charging this cannon worth it? I really don't know if it's worth it because I don't know if I'm going to survive. And I, I don't know if this fight's worth the fight. Well, and if I survive, are you going to survive? Right. Like you, the person at your shoulder may not. Or they may not. And you will. And how are you going to live with that? Yeah. So, so that was really challenging for me. There's a lot in that. So, and he made me watch, um, I think it was Gettysburg or something, this Civil War movie. But, you know, for, for the guys out there, the first thing is just face the cannons. You know, you gotta you gotta make the decision. You gotta set a date, set a goal, face the cannons. It's gonna be hard, but you just need to know that it's the right thing to do, and you're gonna feel feel better about yourself as a person, you know, as a man when you do that, because you do because there's something about that when when I, I just knew it was gonna be hard, and it was, but I, I I pushed through it, and I stuck with my wife, and I cut off all relationship with this other lady and her family, and and it was. And there's there's times where like I wonder where they're at. I wonder, you know. There's always those, and, and especially if I find myself down, that old addiction will kick back up. And I'm like, I wonder, I wonder, but I haven't ever seen her again. And I, I don't have a desire to go and interact, interact, um, because because of the courage, because of the cannons. Like, look, you know, we made a decision. We charged the cannons. We both survived. You know. Oh man. And and that's kind of how we are today. Is and and I'll tell you too, the discipline of just marching sometimes and just doing what's right and working hard to, to rebuild your life and understand who you are and like these four questions you have, understanding who you are and really getting content in your skin. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you really focus on that and you, you re- rebuild from that core, then you're finding contentment's much more easy. 
because you can't find it in the chaos, in the turning chaos, which I'm experiencing now. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have to go deep in myself and say, you know, well, you're a good person, you know. So uh, that's, that's, I would say that would be my advice to, to somebody or my direction is like, look, you, you just face, face the cannons, walk to it, towards them, charge them if you need to, go through what you need to, correct it, make the right decision, and you know what that is. So make the right decision, you know, and, and move on. And, and will it be perfect afterwards? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be crappy. You know, I don't know. But it's the right thing to do. The thing that's sort of striking me, and I don't even know if this is part of where you're headed, but that idea of charging the cannons, that serves your masculinity, mm. which was one of the things that you were talking about struggling with before and having right. challenged before. And it's like it almost, almost in a way, the outcome of charging the cannons doesn't matter because it reclaims something for you that you did. Right. Well said. Wow. And, and so it's so great that there's these additional spoils, like you said. You guys are shoulder right. to shoulder, and you both survived, and right. it's a miracle. Right. There's something very—I don't want this to sound sexist, but there's something very manly about that. Yeah. You know? Well, I think so, too. I think that's kind of why my brain went that way. Yeah. Like, even if you didn't win the war, you were a warrior. Right. And it's you won the war. That's that, that's amazing. That's the legacy. But that's not. But that's not the masculinity. The masculinity is is uh, solidified or cemented by the fact that you went to war mm -hmm. and that you were a warrior. Right. I feel like if you've ever watched a river, you see a leaf going down the river. I felt like that leaf in my life for a long time. You know, life is perfect and easy, and I'm just floating along and going over bumps and yippee ki and all, life is good, you know? <laughs> and that's you as a kid, and then, then trauma hits. But, but part of my internal wiring was to just be lazy and just to let myself go and not be disciplined. Float along. Yeah, not be disciplined, not take the reins, not take the wheel, not drive like I should have, not discipline myself, not be in control like I should have. But if you're in a situation where you've done that and you've allowed your life to, to crash or you've allowed yourself to go down these paths that you know are wrong, now is when you can't be that leaf going down the river. You have, you have to reclaim it, like you said, and you have to really grab this and say, I'm enough's enough. I need to be me. And I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this because this is who, who I am and this is who I deserve to be. You know, we talked about what's the meaning of success. If you make that choice and if you're charging a cannon and you die, at least you die knowing that you did the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. So It's an honorable death yeah, as so, opposed to just withering away. Yeah, floating down a river and becoming an old. Yeah, so I just, I feel like it's not that we're trying to say let's charge and die, but at the same time, there, there is something to that to say that if you do that, you will. I, for me, I experienced that I got a lot of me back. Yeah, like there is a little bit of a like Braveheart feel. A little bit, that, you know. So my, that's the my, William Wallace. My top five, yeah, yeah, favorite movies. That one and Tombstone. Don't be addicted to the applause, and um, be careful about what you're, you know, what the buzz and what's the source of that's coming from. And then, if you've already gone so far down this path and you don't think it's, you think it's too late. It's not too late. Maybe it is, but it's not too late for you to make the change for yourself. It may be too late for a marriage or for a relationship, but it's not too late for you to make the change for you. Yeah, it may, it may be too late for the circumstance, whatever the circumstance is. Right. Right. To turn and charge. 
<laughs> so true to our entire time together, you you teed it up perfectly for me because where I was headed is okay, guys. So <laughs> if we're boiling all this down, Doug, yeah, what you would say to the listeners is all I know, guys, is, and I think you just said it. I did. Yeah. Be careful about the buzz and why that addiction, where it's coming from. Be careful about the applause because it does become addictive. And if you've gone down the wrong path, then turn for yourself. Be the man you've always, not that you've always wanted to be, but you've always known and you just haven't really grasped that. Step out of yourself and, and be, your, be who you are. And women can do that too. Yay! <laughs> not, <laughs> I'm not undermining that at all. But I don't want to be a man. I want to be a woman. But I might right. have a turn to make. Well, I think that's fantastic. One of my mantras is uh, lead with your heart, back it up with your mind. I, say, I think sometimes we just don't lead with our heart enough. We overthink everything. Lead with your heart, back it up with your mind. Yeah. You want to be smart about what you do, the decisions you make. But you have to make them. And so do your due diligence and think through your decision, but lead with your heart. Go with your gut on this one. It's not, a, it's, it's not coincidental that our gut, that our stomach and our digestive system has so many neurons and it is tied to the human brain. You know, your gut usually tells you something and it's usually right. So go with it. Make the decision. Think through it first and then make the decision. So some people are going through this, trying to find what they're going to do and make the right decision. Think through it. Do due diligence, but don't dwell on those on the logic forever. Just go with your gut. Lead with your heart. Lead with the passion, and just do it. Not too many mental gymnastics. Exactly. You get lost up in there with the monkeys swinging from yeah. the trees. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being with us today, My Doug. My pleasure. Really, really grateful that you were here. So before we bring things to a close today, um, since Inside the Actor's Studio is one of my favorite interview shows ever, I always end this show with the questionnaire that James Lipton uses at the end of his show with all of his guests. So, Doug, what's your favorite word? My favorite word? Uh, create. Least favorite word? <clears throat> Boring. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? What turns me on creative, um, taking two or three things that are very different and bringing them together to make something wonderfully new out of those different things. What turns you off? Arrogance. Favorite curse word. Can I say it? Yeah. Holy fuck balls. <laughs> okay. There you go. Thanks for asking for permission. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Um, Sound or not, I, I love great singing. Yeah, I just love the sound of great voices, great singing. What sound or noise do you hate? I don't. I don't have a hate. I would say, what sound or noise do I hate? Man, I got a long list for do this you? one. I know. My so does my wife, and the, the half of them are mine. I would say, um, I, just like an arrogant conceited pious sigh what does that sound like i can hear it in my head from <laughs> i, I want to know what it is it's okay if you can't do it uh, i don't think i can do it all right an arrogant an arrogant pious sigh yeah okay you're just like an idiot what profession other than your own would you like to attempt um 
a form of consulting and coaching. And what profession would you never like to do? Accountant. Oh, yeah. Good one. (laughs) (laughs) Our brains are vibing tonight. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? It's about freaking time. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would. What would I like him to say? Uh, um, Oh, I've never had that. I don't know. I know everybody has this, the typical biblical answer, but I would say, wait till you see all your friends or something. I, there's a party. I just, maybe something like that. Wait till you see who's here. Awesome. Thank you. As always, we thank you so much for listening in. One of the most important things for our speakers and guests when they agree to be vulnerable with us about their life experience is to know that what they have to say is going to fall on ready ears and we couldn't do that without you please remember that all of the opinions ideas information and views shared as part of today's conversation belong solely to each speaker and while we hope our listeners find each episode helpful and interesting please note that this podcast doesn't serve as therapeutic intervention nor should it substitute as advice or direction from a mental health professional All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado. We specialize in working with adoptive families and provide support and training associated with attachment and the impact of early trauma on childhood development. If you or someone you love is struggling with adoption-related or relational challenges, find us on the World Wide Web. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you'd like to be a guest on All I Know, please reach out to Jess. You can contact her at jess.alliknow at inwardboundco.com. One more time, it's jess, J-E-S-S, dot alliknow at inwardboundco.com. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. We release a new episode every week. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us here at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can.